the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history i'm alex hochuli in sao paulo brazil and this podcast is also philip cunliffe in canterbury england hello hi and george hoare in london england hello hey right so george uh wants to tell us about a book he read <laughs> george uh yeah essentially that is um yeah so john gray's the new leviathan's thought after liberalism or thoughts after liberalism um so this is a book that i was very interested to read. Obviously, follow uh, John Gray stuff in the New Statesman. Have several of his uh, his back catalogue as well on my shelves, which we can uh, talk through. Um, yeah, and I'm glad that the two of you can join me to talk this through a little bit because uh, there's a few things I think are really interesting about this book that I did want to talk uh, about. As Alex said, um, ahead of you know hopefully writing something on this. Um, why is this an important book, though? I guess thank you both for joining me. I don't necessarily need to sell it to you, but if I did, here's how I would. So I think that if we want to put John Gray, and we'll get into his biography a little bit in a bit, but this book and him um, in a kind of you know intellectual tradition, what is it? I think it's one that takes very seriously the decay of liberalism and its failures. And for that reason, he's an interesting thinker, uh, although his, you know, his diagnosis is not completely correct, so I'm sure we'll discuss but yeah for me this idea idea of the kind of collapse of liberalism into these strands of hyper hyper liberalism post-liberalism and authoritarian or anti-liberal liberalism this is something which we're obviously going to talk through but i think he is one of the few people who used to be a liberal of a certain sort who really accepts this um and if you want to kind of categorize this post-liberal trend that i would put him in as opposed to hyper liberalism or um authoritarian or anti-liberal liberalism there are kind of three parts or three streams of this and this is you know he's one of the people who used to be uh essentially a, a thatcherite neoliberal and now he's something else but anyway we'll get into this um another reason why i really wanted to read this book is because he uses hobbes pretty centrally and this is a thinker that in the taking control book that phil i and a, a couple of colleagues also uh, wrote um he you know hobbes is crucial for that so to kick off are you guys familiar with with john gray do you follow his stuff um what is your uh what do you know about him because i can give you a bit of a biog yeah well why why don't you why don't you tell her tell us who john gray is who is john not john galt but who is john gray john gray uh yeah so he's probably one of the most um i would say like well-known and certainly prolific british critics of liberalism and was previously a professor of european thought at lse and now he mainly writes for the New Statesman. I think he is a he's a uh, prolific there as well. Um, and previously he was a kind of, you know, much more of an academic um, commentator on Mill, Hayek, other figures in the kind of classical liberal tradition. And now he's kind of this black pilled, red pilled, uh, certainly not white pilled, which is a, a phrase that I came across today, which means optimistic. He's certainly not an optimistic uh, fellow in any sense and certainly not optimistic about liberalism or freedom or progress or global capitalism so yeah and i think that transition as i said before he used to be a thatcherite around 1990s onwards as he came to see some of these problems with false dawn the delusions of global capitalism was one of his previous books so that's kind of he's not um he's not kind of minting his words on what he thinks about globalization and contemporary liberalism but anyway perhaps his most famous book is Straw Dogs, Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals, which is, uh, if listeners haven't read this, it is, um, yeah, I mean, certainly an engaging book, possibly one of the most uh, negative, unremittingly nihilistic uh, books that I've read, which essentially says there's no kind of difference between humans and animals. There's no such thing as human progress. He gives a possible exception with dentistry. That's it. That's the kind of the history of human 
uh, progress can be summarized as yes there was some some improvements in dentistry so yeah this is very british of um, him, or maybe very, not british actually i think there is a thing about british people having terrible teeth no not anymore no i mean i don't know about john gray's teeth but teeth are better i think in britain now because you got the essex kind of uh, the simon cowell essex blazing white grill has definitely been imported. So I think it's probably fair for John Gray to be British in um, accounting for improvements in dentistry. Right. Well, yeah, he doesn't talk about dentistry in this book. But yeah, just a, a kind of, um, I've got, yeah, as I said, a few other of his books on my shelves, and I can read you some of the uh, the titles. New, uh, False Dawn, Delusions of Global Capitalism, as I mentioned before. Straw Dogs, Th- Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals, which is basically like there's no difference, and if anything, humans are probably worse. Al-Qaeda and what it means to be modern. There's no such thing as really being modern. Not a, not a great title, this one. Grey's Anatomy, Selected Writings. And it's like, <laughs> okay, fine, <sighs> whatever. Um, heresies against progress and other illusions and black mass apocalyptic religion and the death of utopia so he's kind of a sunny uh kind of kind of chap you know always looking on the probably got one of those glass half glass half full mentalities um no obviously doesn't at all and we'll kind of come back to this yeah go on go on phil i'm so i'm curious i'm curious to hear your thoughts george because um so my you know my views of john gray were always framed kind of framed by his reputation um, as this nihilistic, I suppose, anti-human thinker. Um, and his uh, kind of, uh, he was always, you know, he'll always, there'll always be a big splash, at least in the British press, when he releases a new book. And particularly when it's framed around apocalyptic themes or um, themes to do with, um, like you say, why humans aren't special, why progress doesn't exist, why Al-Qaeda actually, you know, are the same as everyone else or something like that. I don't know. So I kind of, I, and when I did try to read him, when I did try to read some of it, it was so kind of, I don't know, it seemed so kind of, um, I suppose, deliberately provocative um, that I uh, kind of, particularly around his more kind of, uh, ecological themed um or anthro kind of anthropological themed texts that i kind of ignored him i started paying attention to him more recently because he was i thought unrelenting in the um post-brexit discussions in british politics about exposing just how deeply attached so much of uh, the british ruling elite were to pre-Brexit British politics and their unwillingness to let go. And he was um, very effective in skewering all of those um, commitments and illusions, it seems to me, without, and it didn't require you to buy into his whole kind of um, nihilistic and misanthropic worldview. At least those arguments around Brexit politics didn't seem to. So I kind of, you know, I perked up again a bit. And this is why I'm intrigued to see whether this new title talking about Leviathans and what the state might look like in the contemporary, in the early 21st century has piqued my interest. Yeah, I mean, definitely. He is a ruthless criticism of everything existing kind of guy in one sense, in that he does think that everything is is an illusion um is a fantasy is kind of there's no there's no uh hope for you know or, or more that there's you know there are a series of lies that everyone we tell ourselves including elites so i i would i would see how you could get the kind of misanthropic um conclusion i'm just going to read from from um straw dogs quickly because this is a good summary of i think probably his his like worldview political action has come to be a surrogate for salvation but no political project can deliver humanity from its natural condition however radical political programs are expedients modest devices for coping with recurring evils hegel writes somewhere that humanity will be content only when it lives in a world of its own making in contrast straw dogs i.e this book argues for a shift from human solipsism humans cannot save the world but this is no reason for despair it does not need saving happily humans will never live in a world of their own making and i think he's like actually (laughs) if humans all died it would kind of be a little bit better um but yeah that's his that's his reputation i mean but during brexit he was he was consistent like here's another illusion here's something i can probably annoy uh, like it enjoys pissing people off which is not necessarily a bad thing 
I mean, I, it's funny trying to recall this because I read Straw Dogs at, in university around in the mid two thousands, and it was definitely the spiciest thing. I, I didn't read it as part of uh, like part of my course or anything, um, and it was probably the spiciest thing I'd read. Full stop. Um, in terms of being the most confronting, the most controversial, the thing that most made me go, "Whoa!" Like, I maybe I need to rethink everything I thought about. Blah 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 blah. Um, of course, you kind of step away from it, and you're like, "Well, actually, I'm not a a, a Taoist." Um, as he encourages us to be, just to kind of be in the world. I still believe in subjectivity and whatnot, um, but it still kind of you know shakes your head a little bit. Um, but of course, that was me as a as someone in their late teens. Um, it's funny. Now to think you're back, a Taoist. No, no, I'm definitely not a Taoist. Um, although, you know, it would be nice just to just to kind of float, um, just to float on the water in the, in the sunshine. Not, not really. Yeah, trying to that do does anything. sound good. Um, I think anyway. Taoism needs to rebrand if that's if that's an option. <laughs> if that's part of it, Taoist holidays. Yeah, um, but like thinking back now, you know, and his transition from from Thatcherism into this, um, you know, nihilist kind of anti-humanism. Um, it's a bit like him just turning around, you know, around in the early 90s and going, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, like kind of Oppenheimer. So what he what he does is like he is an advisor to Thatcher. He destroys the old world. Right. He destroys um, socialism, destroys humanism, um, Thatcherism and neoliberalism carries through a vision of, of human rationality, which is, yes, rational. I emphasize on rationality, but an extremely reduced understanding of what rationality is. And then he turns back around and goes, actually, all that stuff about rationality, that's bunk. Um, we need to just kind of, you know, be in the world and not have ambitions and not whatever, not try to be rational. I, so it's, I guess, it, it's remarkable. I guess you could say, I mean, the nihilism, you know, there is a consistency. And this is, I think, where he isn't. A ruthless critic of all that exists, because as far as I know, I mean, and you know, either uh, you, George, or perhaps um, some of our listeners might correct me. As far as I know, he's never actually fully or properly accounted for his transition from Hayekian liberalism to whatever kind of nihilistic um, misanthropy he adopts at the moment. But I dare say there is some consistency, because you know, if 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 there is nothing but the kind of um, the fluctuations of the market. That is ultimately right. A very nihilistic. It's a very nihilistic yeah. vision, and so maybe that is the kind of the consistency and the thing that escapes his his ruthless criticism doesn't extend to ruthless self criticism. He's unable to quite puncture that last illusion. Well, yeah. I mean, isn't isn't that the case for all of us? We don't we don't like to admit that we've we've made a mistake or that we've Speak been wrong. Yourself. In an in an argument, or that maybe our whole worldview was was based on a, a meaningless um, kind of centrality of fluctuations in the Dow Jones. So maybe he was a certain sort of Dow Jonesist, and then he became a different mm, sort of Taoist. I like it. I like it. Mm, I like maybe it. anyway. Let's but get, no, tell us about the is, book. <laughs> yeah. Look. Okay. So I mean, but it is important because he does play a specific role. I think within. Um, you know, Brit for the British intelligentsia, he writes, I think it is worth saying, this is a short book. I mean, it's one of the things that I, um, you know, most enjoyed about it. <laughs> um, I do like short books. They are, you know, why read a whole long book when you can just read two short books? I mean, they only have to be half as good. Um, no, so he does write in this quite punchy style. And there's like, you know, these, these chapters, which in, in this book are <clears throat> specifically on the return of the Leviathan, artificial states of nature and mortal gods and Hobbes's influence runs through all of those but they're quite like here's a here's a section of this chapter and then this other section goes on to something new so it's very like you know if you have a short attention span as I as I find increasingly myself to have then it's quite a good way to keep the the, the reader like interested and you move from you know from this part of um, you know Soviet history to this kind of modern phenomenon and it kind of you know it moves around quite quickly um so yeah i think he does offer uh you know these um kind of puncturing new exciting ideas but also quite digestible he's not a kind of a you know the the theorist who will write a 500 it's not like zizek where every once in a while he'd come up with some 450 page dense tome that you know everyone has to read it no he keeps it short keeps it sweet um and so yeah that's you know his his biography and his he's an s he's important. an He's an essayist, ultimately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that is right. So the book, as I said, he uses Hobbes um, quite centrally, particularly 
Hobbes' 1651 um, book Leviathan. And the way that he draws on on Leviathan is obviously central to the, the, the new Leviathans, the first chapter, the return of the Leviathan. Um, yeah, I will, I will just read it out. I'm not going to read out the whole book, but I'll read out the, the start just for those who haven't read this, listeners and co-hosts, uh, just to get a sense of, you know, where he's, he's coming from. This is from the first page. So he's, he starts off very, very Hobbesian after, in fact, a long quote from Hobbes, which I won't read out. He says, 21st century states are becoming Leviathans, spawn of the biblical sea monster mentioned in the book of Job, which 17th century English philosopher Thomas Hobbes used to picture the sovereign power that alone could bring peace to unruly humankind. Only by submitting to unlimited government could they escape the state of nature, a war of all against all in which no one is safe from their fellows. As he portrayed in his masterpiece Leviathan, a state of nature was not in the distant past before the emergence of society, but the breakdown of society into anarchy, which could happen at any time. It did not matter whether the sovereign was a king or a president, a parliament or a tyrant. Only a state whose power was unfettered could secure a condition of commodious living in which industry, science and the arts could flourish in peace. In the centuries that followed, it seemed Hobbes was mistaken. States emerged in which power was limited by law. Democracies developed in which governments could be held to account. In the 20th century, the defeat of Nazism and communism seemed to show that liberal government was inherently more effective than dictatorship. After the end of the Cold War, many believe liberal democracy was becoming universal. So that's, you know, where he starts. He very explicitly starting point is Thomas Hobbes, the great English um, political philosopher of the uh, Civil War periods or the English Revolution period. Um, and yeah, Hobbes's most famous idea, the Leviathan, um, this kind of, you know, famously pictured on the uh, the frontispiece of, of the Leviathan book but by Hobbes as like, the big guy made up of all the little guys and all the little guys are all of us. And the big guy is like the, has the, the scepter and the sphere thing um, of government and will there be there to kind of like beat up anybody who's out of line. So the reason why, you know, <clears throat> Gray wanted, uh, why Hobbes wanted to create this picture was because he essentially believed and, you know, for a whole kind of range of um, reasons about his, his concept of human nature, which we probably don't need to go into that human beings were kind of basically like little machines and even the weakest um, of us could kill by um, ganging up on others the strongest one so you need that's why you need the leviathan comes over everybody sorts everyone out secures um, some peace so yeah this kind of starting point is that for gray is that well you know hobbs seems like hobbs was wrong where everyone thought hobbs was um, too pessimistic, perhaps, about the possibility of people living together through making laws and through kind of, I don't know, treating each other well without the threat of the um, the Leviathan to kind of smash you on the head and and um, kill you if, you if you step out of line. So yeah, this is the, <clears throat> the new Leviathans though. Where do these um, come in? So basically, and I think this is like one of the central propositions of what of what Gray is saying is that these new Leviathans combine this kind of awesome power of the the sea monster of the Hobbesian Leviathan um, looming over the individual with a set of new promises that are not about providing liberal freedoms um, but about protecting us from from danger and um, you know this is the, um, the the change that that Gray sees is one from um, a kind of, you know, the straightforward older Leviathan um, to this kind of, it's not postmodern, but this new Leviathan who offers, and this is a quote from Gray, meaning in material progress, the security of belonging in imaginary communities and the pleasures of persecution. What do you guys make of this, like move from a, a Gray or Gray's move from a Hobbesian Leviathan to a new one? I guess my first thought would be that I suppose it's telling and important that he sees Hobbes as a totalitarian philosopher. Um, and I suppose that might be consistent with his deeper, with the kind of the deeper um, strain throughout his thought. Um, and it's, a, I mean, I would, you know, from my point of view, at least from my understanding of Hobbes, it's a mistake to understand Hobbes as a totalitarian thinker. Um, though certainly kind of indifferent to many basic questions uh, of uh, 
the meaning of um democracy i suppose but the basic the more difficult claim for hobbes rather than seeing him as a as a totalitarian from whom liberalism and liberal democracy was a refuge rather i think it's that he rewired or laid the foundations depending on how you want to see it for how we understand all questions of social order and the very basic ideas of modern representation and obligation and what the idea of modern self-rule requires. And so I don't, you know, I think to see him as a totalitarian is to see Hobbes as a totalitarian from whom we kind of had an illusory escape, but now we're forced to recognize a return to some kind of new Hobbesian Leviathan, some new kind of totalitarianism just seems to me... um, it doesn't seem to me right. Yeah, I mean that's definitely the model he's presenting is that the the liberal era was the, um, the a safeguard against tyranny. Like the the, Hob- the Hobbesian state was inherently, you know, overwhelming the individual, and then you had this brief respite where, you know, um, yeah, essentially you had liberal freedoms and you had a kind of a period where the state could be could be something other than just this. Um, just massive um yeah totalitarian accumulation or a kind of bringing together of power that would necessarily overwhelm the individual so i mean because the, the hard the you know the hobbes's more basic claim is that the leviathan is constitutive of society itself so you know the things that we take for granted in society not only security but also in due course kind of civil liberty um public order, the functioning and the benefits of society, its material progress, its prosperity, arts and science and industry, as Hobbes says somewhere, all of those things are dependent on political order. And that seems to me, you know, that's not a totalitarian claim. That's a more basic claim about the necessity and structure of political order. Yeah, I mean, for my part, I'm I'm always a little bit skeptical when someone mentions totalitarianism because I'm not sure there's any basis for that. Um, I'm not sure that totalitarianism exists or at any rate, it it tends to confuse things. Um, I think it was kind of a term that was cooked up to join up Nazism and and Stalinism as like one one thing. Um, You could argue that the state, because of its the increase in its power and kind of its infrastructural power and the way it's able to work its way into to everyone's lives and kind of have a greater degree of control. Even liberal states today are more totalitarian than the most authoritarian states of the 19th and, and early 20th century, for example. Isn't so that I, what Gray so is saying? Huh? Isn't that exactly what Gray right, is saying? Right. So this is what, so this is what I'm, so this is what I'm, I'm leading up to, which is I'm, I'm kind of wondering at what time scale, so there's a question to George. Um, what time scale this is kind of operating on, right? When does when does this change happen? Because we've encountered the idea of the promises of a protective state before. Um, we talked to uh, Paulo Gerbaldo um, on on this podcast a little while ago. We've had him on uh, twice, but his book um, specifically about the protective state is something that's emerging now, kind of under the impact of kind of populist revolts. And various crises that the state's now going, hey, we're going to protect you from from harm um, instead of saying we're going to make you free or make the market work. It's more about protecting you. But that's like something that's happened in the past like 10 years um, in that account anyway. What, when does when does Gray say it, says it happens? Yeah, no. So it's I think I think for Gray, it would be essentially you had Hobbes. And then, you know, as, as I, I read out that quote, there was a period um, after the, the Cold War when um many believe liberal democracy was becoming universal and that's the i guess that's the the high point but also the intermission between the old um leviathans which faded away from between hobbes and the you know the middle of the 20th century and were replaced by liberal democracies and the new leviathans and there are some similarities i would say between you know gray starting point and paulo gabaldo's in the sense that both see or both take seriously that there is a kind of a new sort of set of powers that states have today and a new relationship that they might have with um, those that they they represent. Although I would say probably Gray's, Gray's not that interested in concepts of representation or that point that you made, Phil, about the Leviathan or being constitutive of society or, you know, all of us can constitute the, the Leviathan. That's not Gray's um, point at all. Instead, he's, he basically sees that there's a new 
I guess kind of like a new um a new deal almost that's not the right word a new arrangement um let's put it that way between citizens and states which leads to a situation which they could be called new leviathans and I want to read out a another quote here because I think this is exactly on on what we're talking about and it's, I think it's the most important claim in the book um I think it's really central to how we understand what the state does today and what our relationship to it is and it's it's a slightly longer one but hopefully you will um indulge me um because I think it answers some of the questions which you both asked or some of the points that you're both making so he says um yeah so today states have cast off many of the restraints of the liberal era from be- from being an institution that claimed to extend freedom the state is becoming one that protects human beings from danger instead of a safeguard against tyranny it offers shelters f- shelter from chaos New dictatorships have emerged in Russia and China, where communism and free markets have both been rejected. Where democracy continues to function, the state intervenes in society to an extent unknown since the Second World War. These are not Leviathans Hobbes would recognise. The goals of Hobbes' Leviathan were strictly limited. Beyond securing its subjects against one another and external enemies, it had no remit. The purposes of the new Leviathan are more more far-reaching. In a time when the future seems profoundly uncertain, they aim to secure meaning in life for their subjects, like the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, the new leviathans are engineers of the soul. And then he just concludes, and I would be interested to talk this through um, with the two of you, whether you think this is plausible or not. The upshot has been the return of the state of nature in artificial forms. Even as they promise safety, the new leviathans foster insecurity. So this is basically what he's he's saying or what i take him to to be saying is the new leviathans the 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 sort of the new arrangement that we have is that they will we will give them power over us we will kind of bow down to the um increasingly powerful new state form but only because we judge things to be more risky um for us and this is precisely um, because the new Leviathans are creating insecurity, creating artificial states of nature at the, in the same moment they, that they are um, supposedly protecting us and constituting a safe environment. So this is a, uh, yeah, an interesting uh, passage, in my opinion. Is he saying that they're not responsible? Like that it's a failure of responsibility of, of states to actually protect people instead that they create insecurity? Yeah, I mean, that's that's what he says, right? So the save nature in artificial forms, even as they promise safety, the new Leviathans foster insecurity by deploying food and energy supplies of weapons as war, weapons of war. Uh, Russia has projected famine and poverty across the globe. So he's kind of saying, yeah, there are these, particularly Russia and China, um, as good examples, there are these Leviathanic um, states that deliberately create insecurity both within their borders and outside and this is you know this is leading back to a situation of the war of all against all so i mean i think then it kind of cuts against it cuts against i mean it's an intriguing thought right the idea of an artificial state of nature so it would be the idea that instead of um society constituted through political order it's a um disintegration or social disintegration and decay and i suppose you know there and i think i mean there's probably uh, more and more evidence of that i suppose and it's could be framed you know that's one way i suppose uh, if you were a liberal that's one way you'd understand it but it means then they're not really leviathans i mean i suppose that's the point right it's inconsistent because the idea of the leviathan is precisely that it does if a Leviathan creates a state of nature, then it's not really a Leviathan at all, at least mm. in the classical Habesian terms. And to just qualify it as a new Leviathan doesn't seem to me to really um, get that dynamic. At the same time, it seems like it's kind of a, um, you know, what he's doing. I mean, and I guess, you, you know, maybe he, maybe he, um, maybe you can correct me if this is a mistaken interpretation, George, but then it sounds like it's kind of a, you know what he's saying there then is that the he's providing a new kind of ideology for the west then in the sense that you have these new leviathans that are creating artificial artificial states of nature such as russia's policy around the war in ukraine um which is not which leaves our own kind of western states off the hook 
And so to that degree, he's kind of making the case for, I don't know, their protective functions or... Yeah, so I did find this a little bit muddled or more I can present what I think uh, Gray is saying and then we can see whether, you know, this is indeed either a correct interpretation of, of Hobbes as a starting point or something that's plausible in in general. But I I think he does kind of go backwards and forwards on this, but my my take is that essentially the he sees the Hobbesian, Hobbesian or Hobbesian, however you want to pronounce that, both are fine, um leviathan as giving people safety like fundamentally we enter into a social contract because we realize that without it not life will be poor nasty solitary brutish and short but sorry just aside just a footnote on that if it's poor nasty brutish then it should be but at least it's short it's like that woody allen like joke. <laughs> like or, like yeah. the the food is like too salty and horrible and cold but and, and the portions are too small but if the food's that terrible then it's a good thing the portions are too small so there you go kind of woody allen hobbs joke but anyway to return to, to to gray and hobbs um yeah so if the hobbesian leviathan gives people safety um but no but no liberty and you might disagree with this as an interpretation of hobbs but i think this is what gray says um the new leviathans what do they give us they give us meaning. So he says, um, <clears throat> yeah, the um, Hobbes' Leviathans aim to protect human beings from one another. 21st century Leviathans go beyond Hobbes in offering a kind of salvation. In Hobbes, Leviathan secures no meaning in life beyond what its subjects make for themselves. The new Leviathans offer meaning in material progress, the security of belonging to imaginary communities, and the pleasures of persecution. So I think he is basically saying the new Leviathans can't really give us um safety in the same way because they create the art artificial states of nature so instead of that they give us these lesser things of basically he so he says like meaning but i think he basically means kind of ideological um mm. kind of uh goodies rather than you know straightforward honest deal that you had that with the hobbesian leviathan you know you'll stop everyone else from killing me and i'll get on with with things so this is so, what i take the basic model to be so yeah i mean I find I find that astounding, and if I'm understanding correctly, and George, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing what he's saying, but he, I mean, this seems to be like making an argument that they're just provide, you know, states provide us now with these kind of um, ideologies, and you know, like that we can subsist off like wokeness and victimhood or um, some t kind of nationalism, and that what I think is mad about that, what for me that just doesn't fit, is that one of the ways in which our contemporary world is described and why it seems so chaotic is because it's a world increasingly bereft of meaning, right? That we don't have stories to tell about ourselves. We lack kind of coherent public ideologies. Um, we don't very, we don't, in contrast to the past, have a very um, clear kind of link between a story that explains you and your life course and how that fits into larger collectivities. Um, you know, nationalism, socialism, etc. all these things are, are weaker than they were. So if he's saying, okay, look, the state isn't providing you with security anymore um, and letting you get on with things, but instead it's kind of telling you how, not telling you how to live your life, but maybe that as well, but telling you what your life means, like it doesn't seem to be doing a very good job of it because the things he cites, you know, even like victimhood politics, not to understate how, how relevant that is, but I don't think that's a particularly like, satisfying satisfying thing it's not like it that gives people kind of a sense of peace um so it, it's weird that he's saying okay the state doesn't do security but now it does meaning because like one of the things that a lot of theory talks about is how there's a lack of meaning today yeah i mean i'm i'm not fully going to go to to bat for for gray on this necessarily but I, he does talk about you know in that quote that i read out the pleasures of persecution so he clearly is like pretty ambivalent yeah that, I, um, I was very interested in that phrase can yeah. you tell us more what it means i mean or what you think it means yeah i mean so uh, he talks later in the book about hyperliberalism, um and i think that part which we'll definitely get to is perhaps the most useful bit because he's what he does then is you know we might disagree with the way he's kind of setting up this account of the state but his even if it might be quite, um, what, what would the exact word be? Quite acerbic seems a bit too, you know, quite um, blunt. His critique of like ruling ideology or what he takes this to be in hyperliberalism is, 
I think, quite strong. Or he does identify some of the important factors that, that constitute hyperliberalism. And that's essentially what he's saying. <clears throat> if you kind of really want to boil it down, I think, is states today, they can't protect us from, from climate change. They can't really kind of solve our, our problems, but they have a lot more power. So they're these kind of new leviathans. Um, but they're, you know, they're going to be abiding over a, like a, a failure of, of of governance so bad that we're going to have the artificial states of nature. But what do they give us instead? They try to, because they know they can't solve these problems, they try to change the, the, the terms of the deal. And they'll give us this kind of cohering ideology of hyperliberalism, which he has a number of problems with. So this is what I basically take the, the way that he squares all of this. Um, by saying, yeah, Leviathans, they used to have they used to have that that power over man and society and nature. And now, despite having in one sense more power than the control and the absolute um dominance that they would have, partly due to, you know, in in um impending environmental collapse is much lessened. So maybe we can move on a little bit then to, I guess I you know I mentioned this. What is what is Gray's take on hyperliberalism? So this, as I said at the top, I think if you wanted to talk about maybe how liberalism is is decaying, is um, what what comes after liberalism? Because I don't know if if there are many like old school capital O capital S liberals um, left. It seems to me that you have these three sort of um, streams. One being post-liberalism, and I think Gray is a, a post-liberal in the sense that he said he thinks that liberalism's time has passed and it's now, um, you know, to take another of his terms, been devolved into into hyperliberalism. But there are people who are like adherents or proponents of hyperliberalism, so those two things can be distinguished. And then the third stream is authoritarian liberalism, to use the term of Mike Wilkinson's, or illiberal liberalism, or however exactly you want to want to characterize it. Clearly, Gray is is talking about hyperliberalism. This is what he thinks contemporary um, liberals do, and this is quite an influential um, formulation or quite an influential term. Um, and yeah, I'll just read out what um, this again fairly, but this I think is one of the best bits of the book. So maybe a slightly uh, longer quote here as well, and then we can see if you guys think this is as good as I think it is. You know, maybe you'll just be like, well. This is this is the sort of stuff that that Georgie been saying for a little while, um, but yeah. So Gray writes, the origins of what has come to be called the woke movement are in the decay of liberalism. The movement is most powerful in English-speaking countries, tellingly the countries where classical liberalism was strongest. Be beyond the Anglosphere, in China, the Middle East, India, Africa, and most of continental Europe, it is regarded with indifference, bemusement, or contempt. While its apostles regard it as a universal movement of human emancipation, it is recognised in much of the world as a symptom of Western decline, a hyperbolic version of liberalism in the West professed during the brief period of seeming hegemony after the Cold War. Hyperliberal ideology plays a number of roles. It operates as a rationale for a failing variety of capitalism and a vehicle through which surplus elites struggle to secure a position of power in society. Insofar as it expresses a coherent system of ideas, it is the anti-Western creed of an antinomian intelligentsia that is ineffably Western. Psychologically, it provides an ersatz faith for those who cannot live without the hope of universal salvation inculcated by humanity. So he then goes on to kind of to talk about how it's not uh, cultural Marxism, it's not postmodernism, um, and basically say this is the um, the revolt of the professional bourgeoisie. But um, I just wanted to then, we can kind of talk about some of these names and some of these kind of intellectual um, claims that he makes, but just to kind of wrap this um, quote off, he then says, today, what drives these struggles, i.e. the struggles of quote-unquote wokeness or whatever, what drives these struggles is not just rivalry for power, but insecurity. Surplus elites are waging a war for economic survival in which hyperliberal values are commodified in the labour market. Woke is a career as much as a cult. By advertising their virtues, redundant graduates hope to gain a foothold in, on the crumbling ladder that leads to safety as one of society's guardians. So, yeah. So basically what he's, what I think is 
the best bit about this, just to be very clear, because some of this, you know, we've, we've, you might've well heard this, uh, this track before, or, you know, this tune well, um, but to say it's in the decay of liberalism, I think this is why he's an, a useful and interesting thinker to start with is that he does say everything comes from a decay of, of something, or there is something bad at the start, often at the end of an intellectual kind of, um, development, but yeah, he locates this, he locates hyperliberalism in the decay, essentially the failure of liberalism. And I think a lot of people will not really get that point. They'll say it's a distortion or it's kind of capture by a certain class fraction. But no, I think, um, I think Gray is, I mean, I would say he is correct that the precursor for hyperliberalism is the decay of and, under, and self-undermining of classical liberalism. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I wonder, you know, the stuff about wokeness. We've, heard, as you say, we've heard a lot of that before. Um, it's fairly um, accepted, I think, as a as a critique nowadays. You know, um, it kind of is out there anyway. Um, and I, I'm, I don't object to a lot of it, at least as you know, as you present um, Gray's ideas, George. But it does seem. I'm. I wonder whether, like, okay, but so he's done this big grand like edifice of like talking about. Leviathan and new Leviathans, you know, so transformation, you know, spanning 500 years uh, and then goes like, oh, yeah, this new thing that's like literally just come about for the past, you know, in earnest in the past decade. Um, this is somehow like an integral part of it and rather than something that's, you know, bad and um, terrible and, and, anno and annoying, but like it's not it's not like something central to how states function. In my that you know yeah what okay. you mean woke mm. yeah like it's it's like woke will, has come and will go and you know it, the, liberalism's decay is very important wokeness I don't think so much ah yeah I disagree I'm not sure I Sorry, think I mean I th go yeah go on well it was only to say I disagree I mean I think it is I'll you know that um, that ad of the um, the Latina the Latina bureaucrat who worked for the CIA who gave her, you know, kind of presented her personal pronouns, called herself Latinx. Um, I think she talked about, you know, kind of her all of her background and stuff as to why it was a recruitment ad for the CIA. Um, it's one instance, but it, you know, it convinced me that the, I, the decay of liberalism is a bigger thing than woke, but that woke is not a, is not an ephemeral or insignificant moment within it. And that it is something which is, um, However, you know, and people might be frustrated and irritated by using this kind of presumptive word, I suppose, in these kinds of discussions. But as a placeholder for all those phenomena, we know what we mean by talking about woke, that it is indeed an important part of uh, public public life in the West. And unfortunately, I think it will continue to be so. So the decay of liberalism is a larger thing, it's true, but um, I think woke is an important part of that. I don't I mean, and from the quote that you said, George, was great, even though nothing in it is, you know, listeners on this podcast will be familiar with all the claims that he makes in that quote that you read out to us, even though it's very well kind of formulated and succinct. But one element, I think yeah, it's not, it's precisely not universal in any meaningful way. I mean, I think that's the thing. He wants to make the claim that this is kind of a reiteration of liberal progressivism and universalism and all of those kind of grand claims. And though woke, I'm not even sure woke is supposed to apply everywhere, but even if it is supposed to be kind of replicated everywhere, it is precisely, I mean, it's precisely not universal, you know? So it's a degraded liberalism for sure. But he wants, it seems like he wants to have it two ways, right? He wants to say on the one hand, that it is liberal, essentially. It's just a kind of uh, the same lib progressive liberal universalism at the same time as saying that it's kind of decayed and, um, you know, decayed and broken down. Yeah. And you can't have it both ways, it seems to me. If it's decayed and broken down, then it clearly isn't the kind of the heroic universal liberalism that you might look to in centuries past and, you know, give kind of, you know, give your admiration for. It's something else. Yeah, I, th I think maybe a bit of the. Um, well, I'll give you a bit of the context of, of why he makes these claims and see if um, see if you do still think it's it's um, kind of intention somewhere. It, it's in this chapter called "Mortal Gods" because basically what he he says is that 
con- basic contemporary liberalism, i.e. hyperliberalism, has come to fill the gap that kind of religious belief offered. So while the decay, or while woke is a is a kind of, um, and I don't know if he, if he would say this, but I, I think the three of us sound agreed, if woke is some sort of aspect of the decay of, of liberalism, what makes it a more general phenomenon is that there's nothing else to to give to give meaning so that kind of gap of religious belief is is filled by um this kind of um hyper liberal wokeism for a particular reason and i'll just you know again just read out this is slightly shorter quote it's basically all about self-definition he says this is we have now become mortal gods because we have no um no constraint to us us divine uh, defining ourselves and that is something which um hyperliberalism and, and woke culture definitely encourage so he says um the following liberalism was a creation of western monotheism and liberal freedoms part of the civilization that monotheism engendered 21st century liberals reject this civilization while continuing to assert the universal authority of a hollowed out version of its values in this hyperliberal vision all societies are destined to undergo the deconstruction that is underway in the west within western societies this hyperliberal goal is to enable human beings to define their own identities from one point of view this is the logical endpoint of individualism each human being is sovereign in deciding who or what they want to be from another it is the project of forging new collectives and a prelude to the state of chronic warfare among the identities they embody and then he just says in the next start of the next paragraph human beings can never be wholly self-defined and you know that's a kind of current common theme we can't self-define we can't control the world blah 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 so he does. I think that is his take on this, right? That there is a, um, you know, there is a potentially universalizing aspect to this, even if it's only a particular kind of uh, expression. I don't know if he, I don't know if you buy this. Well, so I, I would come back to the a point that I raised earlier. Now, um, as you explained, George, he does say that there is an issue with meaning. That the death of God means that there's a kind of hollowness there that people maybe kind of lack meaning or the you know structures of meaning um and which might set out a path for their life or an understanding of how they relate to the wider collectivities and the cosmos okay so gray accepts that if he accepts that then how does he think that kind of wokeness which we recognize as being quite thin um even if we recognize it's important it's, it's kind of a thin sort of ideology um that that can substitute for it you know, like I, I, that seems to be so fragile and crisis ridden that that I don't know. Does he think it's going to last long? Do you think that people can live off? Basically, mm. can people live off hyper liberal ideology forever? I'm I, I'm doubtful. Yeah, I mean, he's not a kind of a dialectical thinker in the sense of saying what the you know what what will this contradiction create and and what will come out of it next. But I think he, you know, the way he, okay, I'll lay out what I what I take him to to say about this particular point. Which is that hyperliberalism is a, or what its appeal is, is in allowing everybody to define their own identities, and this is a logical endpoint of this kind, or he would say, of a, of an individualism that asserts each each of us should be sovereign in deciding who and what we want to be. So, you know, this um, could this be a universal kind of solution? Well, it is a, you know, it is taking. Perhaps you could argue one of the promises of liberalism to to the next stage in the sense of if you don't have a, um, I don't know, if you don't have a belief in God above this constraining, then, you know, is there any limit to the um, the sorts of decisions and self-definitions that we could we could make? If we could fully control language, then we could fully control our identities um with no you know we could we could self-define as as gods and we would become gods i'm not sure if he would actually follow that last claim that i made but it certainly is um the the stakes in 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 an individual self-making under hyperliberalism are extremely high because there aren't really any any constraints of meaning so i kind of see where you're coming from that there is this gap there but he would say no it's the gap that allows this inflation if you will of like what you could define yourself to be, which makes hyperliberal politics so um, frenzied. He doesn't use that yeah. word, but that would be yeah. my suggestion. Does that okay. does that kind of make sense? I think that I think that works. I think that works. I mean, you know, I, I can I can kind of understand how how that how that goes. I just, as I say, that seems you know quite fragile, and so 
I wonder how long, you know, if he's making this big statement about the last 500 years, it seems like, you know, maybe overinflating something, which in that, you know, span of time is really just a blip. So, um, but I mean, he does, he, it, uh, you are right though, that it is this kind of epochal transition. So we do have new Leviathans and um, what, uh, so that's a change in the form of the state. We do have artificial states of nature. This is a change in, I guess, the condition of society. And we do have mortal gods. This is a change in the condition of the individual. So there are all these qualitative shifts, all in Hobbesian terms, that Gray thinks essentially the the period after the end of the Cold War has has generated. You know, he doesn't the full storm of of globalization has 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 been and gone. And we are in this situation now where we um, try to construct ourselves as mortal gods. So there's no sense of whether this is going to keep running and running or whether it's going to kind of hit an irresolvable contradiction. But this, I think, is definitely where he thinks we are now. So just on, I guess, a, a final point that I did want to bring out, because we've talked about neo-feudalism and techno-feudalism quite a lot on this podcast, and he has a take on this. So we, so what's the idea of kind of neo-feudalism? It's essentially this idea that contemporary society, for example, Joel Kotkin's book or the, the um, discussions that we've had about that or Evgeny Morozov's um, stuff on techno-feudalism. There's a lot of discussions of these um, kind of ideas. But what is the basic idea that, you know, we have moved from capitalism to a new form of society, which either metaphorically or literally um, has a lot of characteristics that it shares with the form of society that came before capitalism, i.e. feudalism. So what um, I think I just wanted to kind of uh, just be clear about this. I, I kind of thought this was almost funny that his, um, so neo-feudalism, this is usually quite a pessimistic um, kind of take. It's like, well, we haven't gone forward into socialism, into communism, into anything better than capitalism. We've gone back to something worse or something historically prior. But um, Grace says, no, we haven't got neo-feudalism why because we're like not good enough to have that it's actually you know he says the, the would-be lords cannot offer their prospective serfs the protection that feudal lords <laughs> previously gave Whoa! in clientelist exchange for their serfs loyalty um so instead we have the suicide of the west um and in fact he says that even this no he doesn't say we have the suicide of the west he says people who say that we have the suicide of the west are too um are too like optimistic so instead he says <laughs> a spectacle of self-immolation at once tragic and farcical is being enacted but suicide involves a measure of self-awareness of which contemporary western mind is incapable so we don't even have the conditions of feudalism we don't even have the conditions of the suicide of the west we have like the endless collapse maybe this actually is an answer to your question alex what comes next where it's just like the endless decay and um in in entropy or entropy or whatever the correct one would be it's like yeah it's just shitter than you can imagine basically so yeah that's that's his claim neo-feudalism would be a good thing but it doesn't you know we're not even we're not, we're not even <laughs> I mean, at that stage in, in, a game of, interesting... of, in a game of one-upmanship or at least one or maybe one downmanship gray will not lose <laughs> yeah it's an interesting claim that you need kind of protect i mean is that right that feudalism needs protection to be effective for it to work? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I mean, feudalism was the era of the Hundred Years' War, right? So the whole point being that which was nothing but kind of um, endless kind of raiding parties in France, burning down, you know, kind of slaughtering peasants and burning down their villages and households and whatnot. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure it quite works, but it's certainly a kind of um, it's a challenge, you know, if you to to the new feudal thesis that if you want to make the claim for a new era of kind of these um, clientelistic forms of uh, relationship as the basis of politics and security, that they need to they need to be effective. Yeah, it's, it's an, kind it's of like an interesting surf, thought. Serfs' rights, like we we serfs, we want to have rights. You well, know, we're not even being taken care of properly. You, you, need, even, <laughs> you need a certain de- you need a certain degree of like lordly responsibility. And more importantly, serfly deference, um, and both those aspects are, are are absent. You know, like there's the there's the, because we live in this pretense of democracy, right? That we're that we're all yeah, that we're all equal. But he's he says materially it's, it's not possible because the, the lords can't 
can't do that. He also says, and I didn't didn't um, raise this, but he also said we don't have um, no modern society has the cultural resources that are needed to reinvent a feudal order. We couldn't have the clarity because nobody has the the cultural kind of um, intellectual heft to to create the clarity within a feudal society. So uh, we don't that's have a pretty, that. That is a pretty good that is a pretty good take on the modern clarity. I have to say. So when people say like the woke academics are like you know the modern clarity. And you say they're not even as they're not even as smart as the guys who were arguing about how many pain, angels can dance on a pinhead. Um, I think that's actually a pretty good take. Um, like, yeah, but, but but for polemical aside from polemical purposes, uh, I, I do wonder. So I don't want to get into the feudalism stuff because it, it seems like Gray has kind of gone off on one there. But what he is talking about, and what the whole neo feudalism discussion is about, is about capitalist decline, right, and decline of of capitalism and decline of liberalism as its, you know, key ideology, um, maybe decline even of a whole form of civilization that I don't know, that might be too big a claim. We don't know, but you know, then I wonder what is his picture of decline and, and maybe, you know, did you find his picture of decline convincing because, you know, decline is something that everyone's talking about today. I, I had a piece about how everyone's now kind of coming to terms with and recognizing this decline at least in the west and um i guess having a sense of what form that decline takes and what its features are is important um and maybe we can take something from gray even if we don't buy his thing of like well you're not good enough for feudalism <laughs> kind of uh you know big big, big balls claims yeah there is something which is like you, you know can we have a bit of feudalism for a treat no you don't deserve it you think you're not having any it's really uh, that's why it's i kind great. of found that's why i kind of found it quite uh, but I, I mean i have that as a, a take that i haven't heard on on that feudalist kind of the, near feudalist thesis is that there are certain requirements even for that degraded declined form of society um from contemporary historical perspective obviously it was a at one point represented a, a historical movement forward and we don't have those we don't have those prerequisites um so yeah <laughs> but yeah worth worth um worth revisiting this this discussion if we do end up um longingly looking f- to neo-feudalism from whatever form of society we are in 50 years hence but no i i think i did have one sort of substantive critical point which i think returns to hobbes and is why fundamentally you know although i did enjoy reading this book i would i would um not give it two thumbs up let's put it that way is that i think he fundamentally um understands or, or sorry misunderstands hobbes um and there is a quote that he does have from um from hobbes from chapter 30 of leviathan it is a weak sovereign that has weak subjects so this i think is a crucial point the new leviathans are not historically i would say particularly strong and this is despite all of the technological um, methods of control that they might be able to have. And this is essentially because they don't have strong subjects. They don't have strong mechanisms of representation that is entirely central to what I would say Hobbes has as the the way in which the Leviathan is birthed by all of us collectively. So because uh, because Gray doesn't see this, this is why he's able to kind of proceed with all of these contradictions and all of these things which don't really resolve he's he because he can't see that the only way you could have a truly sort of um awesome leviathan would be through reconstructing those processes of representation and actually you know um developing them considerably further than hobbes or indeed gray probably were able to 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 kind of see at the present so that's why i think that this idea of artificial states of nature and new leviathans is not the right description instead something like authoritarianism without authority i do like this this term to a certain extent because it does capture the contradictory nature of our contemporary age there is something which is missing but there is something which gray um does get close to capturing a kind of authoritarian or or kind of a power that the state does have but it doesn't have authority it doesn't have the constitutive um, aspect of having all of us making it up as the little people making up the big leviathan so yeah i did want to just put that in there because that's another way to use hobbes is not through state of nature leviathan all of these kind of um 
terms, but is actually through his understanding of representation. And I think that's a more, you know, that would have been a very, very different book if he'd if he'd written it from that from that perspective. So to wrap up, um, thank you both for discussing this with me. I think the most important bit or the the best um, kind of arguments are all in this in this third chapter where he discusses not Hobbes, but hyperliberalism. And some of these might not be new, but as you know, as we discussed, they're very succinct. He does recognize that the decay of liberalism is the precursor for a lot of this. Um, and I think it does throw into relief that some of, you know, we've just talked about some of the uses of Hobbes I don't fully agree with, but we haven't really talked about the second chapter that much, artificial states of nature. And actually in my reading notes, I, I wrote, what's the point of chapter two? There's all these overlong biographical digressions about all these people who had a really terrible time and, you know, mainly under Soviet rule. And actually it's like, that is where he's, he's just off on one basically as a to use a term a phrase that was used earlier um so yeah i think the yeah for for listeners who are going to go and, and pick this up it is for me the i guess there are some provocative things said about hobbes but it is the analysis of contemporary liberalism that far uh, sticks in the mind beyond some of the um the kind of yeah those those biographical pen picks which you know they kind of it's not really clear what the point is other than people can be mean to each other and he's uh, made that point quite adequately over the course of many of his other books but yeah thanks both for for chatting this through with me cheers all right listener hope you learned something from that i certainly did um, i'm intrigued by the book uh, let us know what you thought we'll discuss your questions and comments at the next outfit bonus bonus uh, and indeed if you have questions for george about the book uh, shoot us those uh put them in your messages or, or posts on uh patreon um and tell your friends about the podcast we'll catch you next time see you later bye bye